Welcome to Impact AI, brought to you by Pixel Scientia Labs. I'm your host, Heather Couture. On this podcast, I interview innovators and entrepreneurs about building a mission-driven, machine-learning-powered company. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to my newsletter to be notified about new episodes. Plus, follow the latest research in computer vision for people in planetary health. You can sign up at pixelscientia.com newsletter. Today, I'm joined by guest Yanis Candelop-Loss, founder and CEO of Code for Thought, to talk about trustworthy AI. Yanis, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Heather. Uh, thank you for the invitation. Could you start by sharing a bit about your background and how that led you to create Code for Thought? Oh, yes. I'm Yanis. I'm 46 years old. I, I have lots of experience in, uh, let's say, more than 15 years, actually, in uh, assessing the technical quality of large-scale software systems, like traditional software systems, been doing that since 2007 or uh, something like that. Prior to that, I was doing my PhD in the area of data mining and uh, creating algorithms for uh, analyzing large volumes of data. I had, let's say, somewhere in, in 2008, 2009, I had, let's say, there was an incident that made me think, okay, how can we control algorithms? I had the I want to issue a credit card to the bank. I made an application. The bank rejected my application. They didn't give any explanation. And then I submitted the same application to another bank. And then they gave me two, two credit cards, actually, with really high credit limit. So the question, when I asked both banks on why the first one rejected me and why they gave me so much credit, both, they, uh, let's say, denied to give me any explanations. So around that time, I was started thinking that, okay, we are in the mercy of algorithms already. We need to protect ourselves. So long story short, in 2017, working already with really large organizations in telecoms, banking, uh, healthcare sector, and assessing their traditional systems, let's say, the ones that they have millions of lines of code behind, I started asking myself, okay, now it's time to think on how we can evaluate, how can we assess not only those systems, but also systems that are more algorithmic systems that have way less lines of code behind them, but they uh, process millions of transactions, let's say, or really large quantities of data, and they are probabilistic. And the decisions, the outcome of those systems may be way more critical for our lives. If you have, let's say, a core banking system, if the system works in a wrong way, the worst case scenario is for you, the, the money in your account won't be, the amount won't be correctly presented. But somehow you're going to get the right amount and your fortune is not uh, in danger. But if a bank denies the credit to you, then this will create problems, personal life, business life, and so on. So that's why we created the Code for Thought. So what all does Code for Thought do and why is this important for the future of AI? So what we do is that we are building technology for testing and auditing AI systems. And we're Around this technology, we provide a series of services, either uh, we call them AI audits, or when there is a transaction, when a company acquires another company that has an AI component, we do the so-called AI due diligence. What we actually do is to help organizations not only improve the, let's say, the, the quality of the decisions of the system, but in general, to improve the trustworthiness of their AI systems. Or as our mission statement says, we want to make technology trusted and thoughtful. So what does it mean for AI to be trustworthy? Well, there's lots of discussion about it, right? There are legislations that are being voted, that are being uh, that in the United States and also in Europe and in Canada. 
and everybody has their own interpretation about trustworthiness. In practice, because our work is focusing on the AI system itself, it means the following. It means that the organization around the system, they do follow some best practices when it comes to the governance of the system and some risk management processes around it. At a more technical level, it means that the system needs to be tested for bias, so we know that it works in a fair way. It is transparent, so there is an explanation mechanism where the organization who builds the system performs explainability analysis to understand the inner workings of the model they build. And third and very important is the safety and security of the system, or as we call it, the robustness of the system that we can test with adversarial attacks and see whether the system is susceptible for manipulation for the malicious users, these kind of attacks. So how would you approach evaluating the trustworthiness of a model? And and does it vary depending on the application you're in, or is is there a standard approach? Well, the answer is yes and no. I mean, we do follow a structured approach to do the evaluation. We do follow a series of uniform analysis or measurements to let's say, test bias or to see, to to, to perform some explainability analysis to a system or to test its robustness. But the way we are going to define certain aspects of the testing and the auditing are very much dependent on the context. So let's say a system in the healthcare sector, we're not going to treat it the same way, although we're going to use the same kind of tests, the interpretation of the results or the thresholds of the results will be different compared to a system, let's say, in the logistics sector, which may be not of that high risk, which is for which the the existence of bias might not be that important compared to a system in healthcare or a system in the financial sector. So for one of those examples, whichever one is easier to talk through, could you maybe walk through the types of things that you're you're evaluating for for specific um, use case? Well, a very nice use case I have, it's from uh, the healthcare sector when we were evaluating a a deep learning model, which was actually identifying whether a patient at the hospital uh, has fallen off the bed or not. And this is a problem in, uh, especially in uh, nursing homes in Europe, where there are several, lots of elderly people there, especially at night, the nurses are not sufficient to supervise all those patients. So usually there are several solutions that have been tried in this field, either with Internet of Things, sensors, several devices, but none of them seems to be working as expected. So there was this company in the Netherlands that uh, they're building an algorithm that it can uh, run on the edge, it's let's say on the edge computing, that it monitors the patient in their room. And then if they follow the bed, they give an alert to the night shift. And then somebody is going there to check what's happening with the patient. It was a very interesting project. Deep learning image data sets were mainly made out of uh, streaming videos. And there it was uh, two things. Were, uh, actually, all those things like the, 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 the existence of bias, the explainability analysis and the robustness were very important because A, you want to make sure that the algorithm and the model is being fair, is being treating, is, is, is treating male and female patients in the same way. And what we found out actually was that because it wasn't properly trained, the algorithm could have predicted the wrong result. Uh, the, the likelihood of predicting the wrong result for a woman was uh, twice as much compared to a man. But uh, it was a matter of training, so the team really fixed it. The second part was uh, the by running some, uh, as we call it, explainability analysis. 
we test it and we want to make sure that uh, the algorithm this makes the right decision. So if I see that the patient is lying on the floor, the right pixels or the right parts of the picture are playing an important role for decision and not the background so much. So we wanted to, let's say, avoid the so-called effect that the, the model is very good in judging by, by the background and not by, let's say, the center of the image. And the third was the safety of the system. So if, let's say, somebody was violating the perimeter of the whole system and was able was able to manage serving pictures or input to the model and was trying to change the results, we wanted to see how easy it is for this model to do that. So basically, you're identifying what some of the important characteristics for that use case should be, you know, you know, things like should be fair and unbiased, it should work in the scenarios it needs to, to work in, and you're evaluating those things to make sure that there isn't a known problem with the algorithm that the developers need to fix. Yes, we found a term. I mean, we had discussion with some other, uh, let's say, peers. And uh, what we do and what we are doing, they call it the last mile analytics. So there are several, let's just say that there are lots of tools out there, open source tools that you can do bias testing, or you can generate your explanations for your model, or you can run your uh, adversarial attacks. But what we do as code for talk, let's say, is that we, we do this comprehensive testing in the end of, let's say, an AI models development pipeline. So a team may, may, may be using their own tooling to test whatever they want. But in the end, it's us that take, let's say, the model and unknown data set for that model to test it in a comprehensive way with our own thinking, which is, let's say, independent from the team that developed the model. This thing, we call it the last mile analytics. So just before your model is going to be deployed to production, we do the latest check by combining the results from all of all these aspects as discussed. And the goal is to try to identify the weaknesses, the risky points for the model before these are manifested to production, of course, and for the team to be able to fix them. I imagine that that independent perspective is very important. You know, when, you, when you're developing a machine learning solution, your head is very much in the game and you very easy to have blind spots because you've been working on this, the same thing for months or years at, at a time. So that independent perspective that you bring I suspect it is very important to this analysis. Yes, for two reasons. The first one is what you just said. The team is like inside the box all the time. But also the team that produces an AI system, they are tasked to solve a business problem. So they're optimizing for solving this problem. They're not being optimized to test the model adequately or to identify corner cases or to ensure that the model is working properly and can be trusted. These guys. They try to solve essentially and primarily the business problem. We, our mission is different. We are being tasked to identify the weaknesses and the weak points of the system and then help the, the team to improve them. So we come with two different perspectives, but essentially everyone wants the same thing. And that is the nice uh, thing working uh, with our clients that we're not there to just test and audit. We're there to helping them improving their model. And eventually, both sides are winning in the end. We are happy because we found the things that the team can improve and the team has implemented them. And also the team learned something new out of this process, of course, and they are in a better position to present their work and be also themselves, A, more proud and B, more confident about the solution they're offering to the world or to their clients. 
So you mentioned bias, and as one of the things that you're looking for, there's a much greater awareness of, of bias in AI over the last couple of years. In medical applications, it can come up when a particular subgroup, perhaps a racial group or gender or age, is underrepresented in the training data. In other applications, maybe in Earth observation, it could be because your training data overrepresents a certain part of the world and you expect your model to work everywhere in the world and perhaps it's less accurate in some places. What are some common ways that bias can manifest in the types of projects you've been involved in and what strategies do you recommend for mitigating it? Yeah, first of all, especially for this type of biases, let's say the social biases or the ethical biases, there are certain metrics one can use, like the disparate impact ratio or the equal opportunity ratio, for which also there are some thresholds defined that you can utilize to identify the existence of potential biases in your data set. Now, that's one thing. Now, how to mitigate it? It depends on also how much access your client can give you to their uh, data. So let's just say that the nice thing with these two metrics is that you don't actually need to know the ground truth of the model. You just need to know the distribution of the decisions and then you can judge whether there is is bias or not. But let's say if in our experience, if the teams that we work with, if our clients share more information with us, like the ground truth also of certain decisions of the data, then we can do a much thorough and deeper walk and identify the root causes and then be able to suggest mitigations. Now, also de- depending on, on the team's involvement for constructing or for developing an AI model, of course, the mitigation mechanisms uh, differ. So if a, t- if a team, they build the whole, the whole system themselves, it's easier to mitigate the bias because they have a saying on the, on the data collection, on the training data, on the weights within the model, so they can calibrate and fine-tune things. The less, let's say, control the, C, the, the, the team has on their model, so the more difficult it's becoming to fix any bias problems. Of course, you can always, even if you don't have, let's say, build the, the model yourself and you're just utilizing it, then there are ways to, to identify problems. There are ways to mitigate them. For instance, try to create better uh, training data sets or more, let's say, more balanced data sets. Nevertheless, depending on the, on the, on the, and also on the stage that you are with uh, your model, when you build it or you, it's already in production, then you can mitigate it accordingly. I want to go back to another topic that you mentioned earlier, which is explainability. Mm-hmm. What role does explainability play in evaluating the trustworthiness of a model? Uh, well, I think it plays a very important role. Uh, for instance, we, we have cases where the clients want to understand how their model was, let's say, uh, thinking, or especially the most common requirement we see is that our clients want us to test their model and see degree that the background of an image plays an important role in the decision. Because if, let's say, the background plays lots of uh, role, it means that your model actually is not working properly. It is this, the typical uh, case with the wolves and the snow, that the model was predicting with high accuracy the snow and not the wolf in the end. I don't know if you know that story. It's a, it's a very interesting story for computer vision models. But this is a common thing that we see. So one can say that uh, by performing an explainability analysis, you can use it to essentially debug the way your model works. In the financial services, the explainability is also rather important because if, let's say, you are denied credit, at least you have the right to know the reasons and also to understand how 
you can improve your credit rating, let's say, and be able to secure some credit in the future. So I think it's essential. Creating a model that is both explainable and accurate, those can be competing objectives sometimes, you know, especially with deep learning where models are mostly black box. You can there certainly are ways to explain parts of them, but they are largely black box. And so you're mostly optimizing some sort of accuracy type type objective. How do you deal with those competing needs for, for accuracy and, and explainability? Well, if you ask me, yeah, my point of view is a little bit theoretic in a sense, because I don't think this should be considered as competing. I don't think there is there shall be a dichotomy per se. Of course, if you choose to, let's say, uh, build your solution using a deep learning model instead of linear regression one, you may lose transparency, let's say, and you gain accuracy. But in the end, if, let's say, you want to build something that your clients or your regulators or your internal others will trust, you need to set up the proper mechanisms in place. So even if I have a deep learning model, there are ways that I can explain the decisions of that model and to show them also to non-technical people. Thank God we have uh, several libraries out there. There are tools that one can use for post hoc explanations or to assess the the, the decisions of a system that makes that uh, nowadays, I think if we talk about a dilemma or a dichotomy from a technical point of view, Say it is not. From uh, an effort point of view, of course, if you have a deep learning model and then you need to set up an additional mechanism to explain its decisions, that's an overhead, of course. But at the end of the day, you will need it in order to be able to uh, to mitigate any problems your, let's say, model might create. But technically, we do have solutions nowadays. Would it be fair to say that the important thing to consider is what result you need to produce, who needs to be able to look at it, what type of output they need. It's not just a binary decision in a lot of cases, but depending on who's going to be looking at it and how they're going to assess those results, the explainability part or identifying the important part of the input data or whatever aspect of it that's important for that result is the the thing to consider when you're first developing your model. I think you need to define your stakeholders, your end users, the people who are mostly concerned about the explanations and how you're going to represent those explanations to the people, the more, let's say, the less technical a person is, the simpler the explanation shall be. In the end of the day, I think organizations need to realize that the more trustworthy their systems are, the more they increase the business value of those systems, because those systems are easier to be adapted by end users, to be trusted by end users. And in the end, you can, let's say, sell more or achieve more from a business point of view with a system that you have set up all those mechanisms in place. But I agree with you. Trying to identify the audience for the explanations and the right type of explanation for the right type or for the right type of personal role is time-consuming. But let's say it's an important step towards making your system being trusted by your clients and peers. Yeah, that aspect of working backwards from the end goal to figure out how you should develop and what the important characteristics of it are. I think that's that's important. No, I agree. So trustworthiness is important for all AI and probably even beyond AI. But do you think there's a greater demand or a greater need for trustworthy AI in certain verticals? Yeah, that's what we see, actually. You hear more and more sectors like healthcare or automotive. So sectors that the models make more life-critical or life-changing decisions, these are the sectors that people are asking for more 
transparency, more trustworthiness, more let's say fairness. But eventually we see eventually we see that because as I said, we have this service which is called AI due diligence. We also see that investors, when they buy an asset, an AI asset, or they want to acquire an AI asset, they are concerned about those things. So recently we did a project in the log- where a company was acquiring an AI startup from the logistics sector. You can say that they had a model which is not of high risk. It was classifying alerts coming from certain type of vehicles. But in the end, even the investors were interested to know how this, is this model working properly? Is there any type of statistical bias in the model that we should be concerned with? Is it transparent enough? How easy is for somebody to compromise the model? So we start seeing this trend or we start seeing this need because I don't like talking about trends. I don't like talking about needs, actually. We see these needs becoming more and more or manifesting themselves either in really highly regulated sectors or even in medicine and acquisitions or of digital assets which are based on the AI technology. That's interesting that you even investors are looking for this now. You know, there's definitely a greater awareness in, in the AI community overall and in, in academia and in industry about trustworthiness and bias and all the different aspects of it. But it, it's good to hear that other other areas of, of the industry, other stakeholders are, are thinking about it too, not just us technical people. Yeah, I agree with you, uh, Heather. I think that they, in, within the next two or three years, we will see more and more of these uh, examples. We will see more investors asking for this type of uh, due diligences. We will see more companies interested in knowing what the regulators or what the legislations are dictating so they will try to comply with them. Is there any advice you could offer to other leaders of AI startups? Well, yeah, I don't know who I am to give an advice, but nevertheless, I will try to. I think that everyone who is in the AI domain and they're building their systems, I think they should don't try to optimize only the business problem. The quality of your solution, the trustworthiness of the solution shall not be an afterthought. I think teams, organizations, they should kind of integrate these aspects from the start, from the beginning of the development of their system. And I'm very confident that in the end, this will pay, pay off also from a business perspective. And finally, where do you see the impact of Code for Thought in three to five years? That's a really nice question. Personally, I'd like to see us as becoming the state-of-the-art solution for what we like to call ourselves last-mile analytics in AI audits in both sides of the Atlantic. So Europe, UK, US, and Canada. This has been great. Yanni, you and your team at Code for Thought is doing, are doing some really powerful work for responsible and trustworthy AI. I expect that the insights you've shared will be valuable to other AI companies. Where can people find out more about you online? I guess they can visit our website, which is codeforthought.eu, or our uh, LinkedIn page, Code for Thought. We also have a YouTube channel, but you can find everything in our website, which is codeforthought.eu. Perfect. I'll link to all of that in the show notes. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you very much, Heather, for the very nice and interesting discussion and for the invitation. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening. I'm Heather Couture, and I hope you join me again next time for Impact AI. Thank you for listening to Impact AI. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share with a friend. And if you'd like to learn more about computer vision applications for people and planetary health, you can sign up for my newsletter at pixelscientia.com newsletter.